Welcome to Out in the Wilds, a podcast by two married-to-each-other ladies where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Rachel, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Allie. Hi, everyone. Allie, what episode are we talking about today? Today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 8, which doesn't cover a certain period of days on the island. Instead, it is called Exodus, which I think is interesting, right? Because it does kind of cover days on the island. It covers like the last day for both of them, which we started in the previous episode. It's just interesting because it's it's such a change from the way they've titled episodes throughout the course of both seasons. It's also interesting because like an exodus by definition is like a mass departure of a group of people. See, that's what I was waiting on. I was waiting on you to define it for me. I knew you had the (laughs) definition. And why that's interesting is because, you know, in what context are we thinking about this as being a mass departure? It never really happens, right? They aren't rescued at the end of this episode. Um, While they are taken from their, their independent islands, they're now stuck on this other island. And so... It's kind of a quirky thing. It's a word that, you know, Gretchen would use very much, but it doesn't maybe necessarily make sense in the context of where we end this episode. Unless it's from Gretchen's perspective, in which case she and her team have exodusist. What's that? (laughs) What's the plural? Yeah, what's like the exodus is a a noun. It's a thing, right? Not a verb. Yeah. To exodize. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm just making up words. No, and I'm excited to get into that later when we talk about some of the conversations that Gretchen has on the plane, um, when we're thinking a little bit about what an exodus means to her, because she says some funny things about phases throughout this this episode, especially both when she's talking to Leah and when she's sort of detailing on the plane to Alex what the plan is, but we'll we'll get into that at a later time. I think this is a good time to do just a quick spoiler language and content warning. Uh, spoiler wise, this is the end of season two. So obviously we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. There's going to be plenty of spoilers. Make sure you've watched this episode before you're listening. Language wise, uh, we are going to use explicit language throughout this. Probably not that much. We just swear every once in a while. Well, it's also a very explicit episode. Shelby drops three F-bombs in one conversation with Fatten, which I will talk about later. Yeah, especially when we quote people, we'll be we'll be swearing. And then uh, around content-wise, in general, The Wilds is a show that deals with a lot of mature subject matter. Uh, In particular, we're anticipating having some conversations around violence this episode. I think um, elements of sexual assault will probably pop up and some of the other kind of complex conversations about mental health that we've been having throughout the season will also make a little bit of a re-emergence too. But those are, I think, our, our major sort of content flags for this episode. This episode is a wonderful one for podcasters because everything is sequential. So we are going to work our way through the podcast in the same way that the episode is laid out so beautifully for us. We'll start with the girls' island, then we'll head into the boys' island, then we'll talk through all of the scenes in the bunker, and we'll end with a discussion on all things airplane. Also... The series started with a plane, and we end with a plane. There are a lot of episode one parallels in this episode. I mean, technically we end with Leah screaming on the top of the mountain, but like, I think the plane... It's almost how we started it, to be fair. Yeah, (laughs) but I think the plane kind of, it just makes sense as as sort of that spot where all of the framework for what was supposed to happen next is kind of late. Yeah, it's anything but a plane ending. Ha ha ha. What a good pun. I like that. Thank you. As always, we'll then talk through our overall thoughts and reflections, 
Each of us will choose a quote of the week and share it with the other person. Then we'll battle it out to announce the very last of season two, Deserted Island Partner of the Week. And we'll see where, where we get to. We'll see if we've got some agreement or not. So without further ado, let's get into it. So moving first to talk about the girls, I want to separate out the opening scene from this episode because it kind of exists in this weird space where it is connected to the girls, but it's also connected to the bunker, but it's also potentially connected to future stuff. It's sort of this weird standalone piece. And that's Shelby's singing scene. So we see this scene of Shelby and... (laughs) Is it a scene that we've seen? Well, I don't want to say it's a flash forward or a dream yet because I want to talk about that. Yeah, my first question to you is, what the fuck is this scene? (laughs) Uh, But there's this scene. (laughs) And in it, Shelby is singing in a bar. Um, She's singing a cover of a song called Martha. And she sees Tony in the audience. And I mean... Shelby's kind of crying and then they have like a nice little wave and then Shelby says that you know she's going backstage for five minutes and she'll come talk to Tony afterwards and then she's back in her dressing room and Gretchen comes in dressed like Morpheus sort of from the Matrix and offers Shelby either a blue Sour Patch Kid or a red Sour Patch Kid and then it kind of like flashes to Shelby waking up in the bunker. Yeah I mean you've talked a lot about how it's a scene Which, we've had other scenes like this, although I would argue that the Martha dream type of scene is more explicitly a Martha type of dream. But what do you think this scene actually is? Is it a dream? Is it a flash forward? I don't know, right? Like, you're supposed to do everything. Um, I think it's a dream. I think it's a callback, I agree, to Martha's dream. There's a bit of like a surrealness around it that I think is kind of super potent in it. And it felt to me like a callback to Martha's dream. I think a lot of people are like, but what if this is a flash forward, right? But I, I think it's more Shelby trying to work through very complex feelings that she has about what she feels are the repercussions of her actions namely her losing both Tony and Martha. And so I think you see that when she's talking about, when she dedicates the song to them both and she talks about two souls that she lost and and all of these pieces, she's trying to struggle and work through that kind of grief. Now, I think it's interesting that she sees this like glimmer moment though, where there seems to be a potential for a reconciliation between her and Tony in here. I just feel like it's her subconsciously trying to work through what are very complicated feelings. It's interesting that you said the two people she's referring to is Tony and Martha. I know the song is called Martha, but I actually thought she was referring to Tony and Becca. Oh. Because of her actions kind of contributing to the loss of both of them. In the case of Becca, things that she said. In the case of Tony, things that she didn't really say. Or is it Becca and Martha? Could be. Two people who have been quote-unquote lost not just to her but like to her perspective we don't think at this time that she knows that Martha's better mm. so two people who have been lost at this time as a result of her actions and a result of her fear my mind is blown <laughs> I mean it could be any kind of combination of those Shelby has a lot of guilt that she's carrying and that she's trying to work through and some of it is misplaced but other parts of it I mean she's in deep therapy around some of this stuff 
Um, but other parts of it like would definitely be sitting with her and she would be she'd be kind of struggling to to work through and I think like there's a really nice callback moment which is why I definitely think that Martha is one of the people because this is the second is this this an argument this is an argument now okay (laughs) it's not an argument but it's this is the second time we've seen Shelby kind of sing in a performance sort of setting Mm. and both times she has cried Right. So thinking back to the last season at the last episode eight, which is the last time she sang too, we had the scene of her at the pageant is right after she found out um, that Becca had passed away and she starts crying when she's singing that song. Similarly here, when she's singing this Martha song, she starts crying as well. It feels like the first time when we saw her crying, she was crying. It was a loss. Like she was that emotion that was coming out while she was singing was about the loss of Becca But in this scene, it felt a little bit more like it was about regaining Tony and maybe regaining that sense of family. So there was a nice sort of like full circle kind of feel about it. I don't want to argue with you. I mean, it's too early in the podcast to start an argument. We got a long way to go, lady. I don't don't think we need to argue. Like, I think there's there's layers of truth in all of those things. And these are all things that Shelby is carrying. And it's it's okay for things to be about multiple people. I can live with that. Yeah. Also, I don't think this scene gets enough fanfare. Like, of the scenes that I think should, like, we should be talking about still, like, this is number one. And maybe, like, I don't really, I don't pay attention to, like, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Facebook? Do people talk about the show? Reddit? Uh, Social media? (laughs) Tumblr? I'm like, you pay attention. Tumblr, yeah, you have a Tumblr. You pay attention to none of the social media (laughs) accounts. No, I do not. So maybe I'm, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I think it's a fairly beloved scene. It's beautiful. Like Mia Healy sounds great when she's singing it. There's like a lot of symbolism too in that it's like very blue behind Shelby. It's very red behind Tony. Like, I think there's, there's like a lot of like... There's a lot of like visual depth to the things in this scene. It's just one of those ones that we never really got to take anywhere and unpack because, you know, we still don't know if it's a flash forward. We still don't know if it's a dream. It just didn't have that sort of resolution, I guess, to what it is. Yeah, two things I want to say about this scene. It's hard because like, do I think that Gretchen would approach Shelby later on, years later, dressed as Morpheus with two Sour Patch Kids in her hand? No, no. But there's pieces of this scene that make me feel like it's closer to a flash forward than a dream. The reason I say that is Shelby singing at a bar. My interpretation is that the bar is like in Texas. The reason I say that is because there's like a red star behind Tony that you could see. Hmm. The Lone Star State. But my thinking is that she's in Austin, which is like well known for being like more liberal, more clear inclusive than where she's from. Mm -hmm. And so I think about her kind of post island wanting to be in Texas because she is very Texas, but like hopefully moving to a place where she feels more herself. I also want to point out on one of her wrists, she has a lotus tattoo and lotus means rebirth. And so I think about those two things together and it makes me feel like this is a reasonable path that Shelby might've gone on post island. I like that. I think like the hard part that I have with it being a flash forward is like, it's not even like would Gretchen come and like propose something like this to Shelby. It's like the Sour Patch Kids. But I think the other piece that I struggle with is for the Sour Patch Kids to show up in Shelby's dream with Gretchen handing them, she would have to know they're symbolic for something. And we've never seen any evidence that Gretchen has used the Sour Patch Kids with anyone other than Josh. Right. And so it's, unless there is some sort of like deeper lines of symbolism where she has used Sour Patch Kids kind of throughout the course of, 
of things which I just didn't see. Right. Hopefully they got some sponsorship by SPK. <laughs> by Sour Patch Kids? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. The Matrix symbolism is also really weird. This is the second time this season where they've really like pushed movie symbolism. So the Titanic was the last example where there was, I think I think we counted two or three references yeah. to Titanic throughout that. And there's quite a few Matrix references throughout this episode. So first of all, there's, you know, Gretchen showing up in the red pill, blue pill piece. But then also Fatten references back... Like she says, red pill party of two. She says, uh, I didn't know you would go. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, I didn't know that you would go so all in if I gave you the red pill. Like it's sort of a it's sort of a line that has continued. That does lead me maybe to think that it's a little bit of a, a dream. Right. And so Shelby's thinking back on those things as she's pulling it together. But it's it's interesting just because it's the second time that a show has gone all in with that. I think two. Like, Gretchen in this scene is supposed to be Morpheus, right? For those of you who have never watched The Matrix, um, side note, I watched it once. My parents let me watch it on New Year's Eve, and then they made me stop watching it. And I was probably... It always happens to you. It always happens to me. They made me stop watching it briefly so that we could watch the ball drop or whatever. And I, like, didn't want to watch the ball drop. I just, like, wanted to continue the show. I don't know. I was, like, a preteen or, like, under 10. I don't know how the fuck old I was. But anyways... um, Great movie. But (laughs) the reason that I'm bringing this up is, so Morpheus is the one who gives Neo the option of red pill or blue pill. Um, And there's like this really big emphasis on choice as a part of the Matrix. Like they couldn't, like ethically, they, they couldn't just wake Neo up and like let him see sort of that the world that he thought was real was not real. There had to be like a conscious choice that was a part of it. And that's interesting because, number one, Gretchen never really gives anybody a choice. Um, She hasn't given the girls, like, choice is not something that kind of even enters her realm of thought in any of the work that she does. She has put them in this situation with no options. And she didn't, there's no consent based around the work that she's doing. The other thing is, Morpheus is technically a good character in The Matrix. Like, he does, you know wake up neo and he's like leading a revolution but he's like seen as a as a fairly good character like there's shades of gray with everyone and so it's interesting too that we would see gretchen in this role because our perception of gretchen is often that she is inherently i'm not going to say evil but maybe evil but at least like a not good character well i think the choice in part too is it's the illusion of choice right and when Mm. you are faced with two options and you choose one you feel like whatever the outcome is, was your choice, right? So it's creating a situation where it's an illusion of choice and you have to be kind of satisfied with the outcome because you had the choice. The thing is, is that the options were predetermined and probably both options suck. And you also kind of create some culpability if you've selected one of those options. And I just want to say that there's a lot of build up here towards an implication that Shelby is a confederate for Gretchen and that there's a conversation that happens around that. I have some feelings about this, especially with thinking about the way that Fatten also echoes back the red pill stuff. Some, I just have some feelings, but we're going to save that and we can talk about it towards the end um, when Gretchen's actually sort of having her speech about putting another confederate in place. Back on the island, for Shelby and Fatten's arc, we see them exploring significant places on the map that Nora had made. Things like the pit, and um, we also see them chasing after this sort of lightning bolt that's on the map. 
While they're doing this, Shelby hurts her ankle trying to climb a tree to retrieve something up there. And Fatten goes up and gets it. And it's the sort of technological gadget. <laughs> well, I'm sure we're, we're going to talk about it. Um, but sort of through this, they find evidence that there is a bigger plot on the island. And so the both of them together are finding that sort of confirmation piece that, that we've been working to for a long time. They aren't quite ready to take it to the rest of the group, though. So they decide to wait until the others and then head back to the spring. I guess first things first, Fatten, you are getting stronger. You did scale that tree like a boss. Also, I just love this whole sequence of scenes because like we love a girl on a mission and we love both of them on missions and they are just out there to solve this mystery. In a vacuum, which of the girls do you think is actually the best tree climber? Nora. Oh. What do you mean in a vacuum? Like in a vac, like in an absence of the situation. Who do you think is the best tree climber? Leah. Yeah. Probably for similar reasons. Like I just feel like, like I guess for Nora. Artsy kids. Yeah, that like would climb trees. trees. But Leah's taller, so I was like, those (laughs) limbs would help. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Similar reasons for Nora and Leah about why they would be really great, really great tree climbers. I still have a lot of regret that we did not get to see them fill the pit in. I thought it was so lovely. I just can't You're the only person that's like, well, I want to see this backhoe. I want to see. (laughs) Because I want to understand the logistics of it. But I just thought it was so great that, you know, this thing that Leah had taken Fatten to see, this proof that Leah had had that there was something going on with Nora was filled. And Fatten looked at it and all Fatten saw was ground and no proof there. And, you know, just felt sad and heart feels for Leah who had had pinned so much on this but then once again that feeling of right place right time then Shelby comes and just immediately sees all the other things she doesn't see this as just ground she sees this as soil that's been overturned she starts to see all the inconsistencies that exist in that space I want to talk briefly about Shelby's language here she drops the f-bomb three times I think throughout this conversation And it brings me back to some extent to season one where I was tracking it for some reason. I don't know if I ever talked about it on the podcast, but I was tracking how many times she swore. And it was like four times or something like that up until when she kissed Tony and like 30 times after that. Yeah. And so I find it really fascinating that here you see her language change again when she's on a mission. And I feel like there's something about it being closer to who she is and closer to her authentic self in these situations. There's a lot of ways that that Shelby as a character too mimics the people that she's around and she sort of reflects them back. So we see her be very soft often when she's talking with Nora as an example. But I think like Fatten is someone who also swears quite a bit. And so I think she's also reflecting that back. I think also she's like, sitting a little bit more in a natural space for her as a character as opposed to being so concerned with how she's projecting herself to the world because she's so focused on that task Um, i loved the detail that she's like fucking amazing at escape rooms because i think there's a lot of symbolism in the idea of escapes so thinking about you know young shelby in texas with those high doorknobs with (laughs) yes with those high doorknobs feeling super trapped in the world that she lived in, in her life, um, really latching onto this idea of unsolving a mystery or a case or throwing herself into something and finding a method of escape. I think that's really beautiful. I think it's one of the ways that this season has really enhanced our understanding and and created a more multidimensional understanding of Shelby as a character. Because even I think when we think about uh, Mortal Kombat, 
and her playing that with her brothers um, or this thing with escape rooms. They maybe fall out of our perception of Shelby as like this pageant queen who's just, you know, kind of going through all of those pieces and really just creates more layers to the person that she was even back then. Some might say that she's kind of like asparagus. <laughs> that's a that's a very old callback joke that I don't think anybody will remember. <laughs> I remember, though. I liked it. There are a number of callbacks in this scene to episode one of season one. Of course, Shelby hurting her ankle and then telling Tony later on that she had an incident with the tree is one of them. But Shelby also says hard pass to Fatten when Fatten asks if they want to pray, which is something that Tony says to Shelby in episode one when they think about going on a mission to find water together. I was wondering if you had anything to say about that or even about the prayer scenes. We think we kind of went over it just in our conversation as you were summarizing. Yeah, I think around the callbacks, it's actually something that I loved over the course of season two. They do a lot of callbacks and either near quotes or completely accurate quotes and also like the quoting of other characters. It's something that I think is like just a really beautiful connection and a really beautiful way to show how people learn from others or how some of these things that people say to them stick with them and so then they parrot them back at a later date so yeah I I just think it's like it's like a nice it's a nice way to recognize season one faith though faith is such like an incredibly beautiful theme this season in a lot of ways all of the characters are working on finding faith like we see it with dot i think it's in the episode episode seven where she's kind of like talking to her dad in the woods we see it obviously with rachel all through this season that regaining of faith we see shelby struggle with it um we see this moment where fatten sort of regaining it as well too this is like beautiful sense of them finding meaning and that meaning helping them to find direction something that we talked about way back like back in season one was how Fatten's faith in particular is quite interesting because you know Shelby often gets all the kind of credit for being someone who is very ingrained in her church community and things like that but we don't often talk about Fatten in the same light whereas like we heard her family goes to mosque every week like her brothers go and so she also was raised in like a very faith-based home and also would have like a lot of those pieces like ingrained but we often really focus on Shelby and Shelby's faith but there was like just like a nice recognition here that you know next to maybe Shelby Fatten probably does have the most ingrained sense of like family faith I think there's some weird bits in this like I think it's interesting that she only remembers like one prayer because also like she would have she would have gone to mosque like Maybe she had stopped by the time she got to a teenager and was given a bit more of a choice, but um, I thought that was a little bit interesting. But it was something that was very unexpected from Fatten, but it also like made sense a lot to her character. There's like this beautiful sense throughout these conversations that Fatten and Shelby are having that this journey that they're on to find the truth isn't actually necessarily about what's uncovering what is actually happening on the island. Like on a surface level it is. But it's actually more about restoring the things that are broken in the people that they love. And so both of them kind of refer to that, you know, there's, you know, Shelby saying, because I never won't love her. You have the like classic fatten line of ditto bitch, different her, same sort of idea. 
But this this idea that it's a little bit more relational what they're trying to do. Whereas Leah was really focused, you know, when she's chasing down proof that this island is a conspiracy, it was a little bit more based around, you know, they're trapped and how do they escape and all of these things. But for Shelby and Fatten, it feels like more about restoring or giving back to those people who have been harmed. So in particular, Leah and Tony. And so I think there's just something a little bit beautiful about that. I still think it's kind of connected to faith and the way that faith gives you hope and and the way that finding some of these things restores hope in the group. Also, what the fuck is the thing that they pulled out of the tree? Yeah, I do want to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things, and I hate it when shows do this, but I just feel like it... It's supposed to be like, it's technology. (laughs) We don't know what it does, but it is technology and it's part of it. Yeah. There's batteries. I thought maybe a cell phone booster. Yeah. And it has an antenna, but like, it doesn't seem like it's like recording necessarily. Yeah. It's just like a black type of box with batteries and an antenna. Yeah. Well, I also thought maybe it would charge a phone because like also they had one phone that was supposed to last them 50 days, but... Yeah. Well, it is a lightning bolt. So you have to think about what a lightning bolt would symbolize. So I like Mm -hmm. the charge or boost. I think those are both verbs that correspond with a lightning bolt (laughs) but you're right too like it it couldn't be something to record it was in the middle of fucking nowhere there was nothing around unless there was a plan to eventually put a camp there and that was supposed to be where Nora was supposed to lead the camp to be but there's no uh there's no reason to record it could boost the cameras that Nora was recording into. Yeah, it could be like connected to that or something. Yeah, because you'd think the cameras that Nora would be recording into, it was a live stream. So yeah. you need something to power it, which was in a tree, and also to transmit it. So yeah. that's a good idea. Actually, and I like that idea because we actually see at the end scene, I'm jumping way ahead here, but Seth is actually playing with that or restoring or putting batteries in in his last scene which is like the last scene of the whole show and so i like kudos to rachel for catching that because i just was so angry that he was still alive that i've seen that scene like eight times now and i never noticed and rachel's like well he's playing with one of those things and i was like what the piece of technology (laughs) the unknown piece of technology but i like the idea that it's connected to like a live streaming camera because that i think suits the narrative of why gretchen took everything out and how she still has someone on the ground and also something to still collect data, right? Because mm-hmm. that's part of it too. You can't just have the experiment go on but not keep collecting data. So there needs to still be some sort of recording, filming, audio, etc. Well, yeah, because otherwise she's totally reliant on the word of her confederate, which already was... We're so far ahead yeah, of where we're we gotta, we gotta, It's we okay, it's okay, down. it's okay. I just want to say one thing though. Um, because if you're not recording something then you are tied to the word of your confederate, which already didn't work for her with what happened with Seth. Right. And she's already learned that, right? Like, you shouldn't make the same mistake twice. You cannot have unreliable narrators who are also confederates. So she shouldn't make the same mistake twice. So there must be some sort of plan to still record or track or whatever those things are. Yeah, well, that's what science demands, if we can call this science. Yeah. I think my biggest question too is what level of proof does Fatten want before she tells? I feel like this this technological gadget is and Nora's notebook and like the map and like all of these things like is like is quite a bit of proof. And so my question, I guess they didn't know they were going to be rescued, so maybe there was plans to explore more of the map. But just sort of you know what kind of proof does she want before she tells? I think it's about proof, but I also think it's about 
consequences. So for Rachel, of course, knowing that Nora was aware of something going on and now is no longer here, what's that going to do? Other than just like break Rachel. Exactly. Um, For someone who has been on their own journey, especially Rachel this season with Faith, like would that just undermine that and how would that affect the group and so they're probably looking for an insurmountable pile of evidence so that even if you were skeptical you would still be open to it yeah exactly so i think that's that's another piece to it i think something else that's a little bit interesting is fatten says that you know what's giving her life is the idea of having a moment where she could tell Leah that she was right. That little witch Shelby does it. Yeah, well, that's it, right? Because it's not, it's funny because she says, you know, she wants to tell Leah that she's right. And Leah does receive a note that says you were right, except Shelby's the one who brings it to her. And it's just, it's interesting because Shelby sort of jumped in and did that. I mean, it brings up the question, was the note from Fatten and Shelby just delivered it? And like, maybe Fatten couldn't convince them to let her see Leah. But I think it's... um yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a thing because she didn't get to give that moment to Leah. But she knows that Leah knows because when they come out of their bunkers later, their, their rooms later, she says, I think you know more about what's going on than anybody else. Yeah, which I interpreted as maybe she knows that Shelby's given that note, but also she was kind of validating Leah in that moment. Like that was her opportunity to say you were right, just in different words. Yeah. Speaking of Leah... Oh, let's go talk about her. Let's talk about Leah. So Leah's on her own arc this this episode for this part. She's out in the water still with Ben. Uh, they're sitting on a rock at one point. She also lays on a piece of the plane wing. She's having a crisis thinking about whether she should go back. She hears some yelling, um, sort of like voices that are calling from both Shelby and Fatten's group, but also from Tony, Martha, Rachel, and Dot's group. And those sort of call her back to the rest of the girls as she battles against ben slash herself a little bit about whether or not she should go back but she does ultimately decide to return and they have a they have a, they have a little bit of like a tussle about it in the water and then ben tells her to let others underestimate her and let them believe that she has less capabilities um, and use it to her advantage just want to like take a moment for ben folds Number one, he spent so much time in the water, and then he let Sarah Pigeon just absolutely scream in his face. I know, man. She's, like, so close to him and just screaming that she dunks him. (laughs) (laughs) That has to be, like, somebody's worst, like, ten minutes of your life, right? Or ten seconds? I feel like he actually said it was amazing. He did, like, an interview about it, and he was like, Sarah Pigeon is just, like, such a, like wealth of knowledge and stuff like that and like a fantastic actress and like it was like a lot of fun to do because you have to like you have to kind of laugh when you're doing stuff like that it's like so intense um but he i think he actually said like i think the water was cold but like overall it was like an enjoyable experience for him which i mean i think is great like during this you know we know that part of this is tied to leah's hallucination right and so there's things that we see as a part of these scenes that we know aren't actually there The ocean still isn't full of copies of the nature of her. There aren't pieces of the plane still floating around that she's lying on. We've actually never seen a rock like the one that she's sitting on. So my question is, is Leah just free floating out in the ocean while all this is going on? I guess so. Like she's a good swimmer, right? So Yeah, Yeah, I guess, right? 
it's it's so sad because like in this moment she feels so unwanted and so unimportant and she genuinely feels that everyone would be better off without her and it's just like the result of all of these moments of people telling her to leave and all of this you know what I mean like people telling her to leave or to stop or pushing her away and it's just like culminated in this this point of a fork in the road for her where she has to decide whether she's going back or whether she can actually sort of like handle it going forward well and she talks about that tension right like she talks about how it might have been better to do this at the beginning because then she would have been on her own terms right and alone well, she says it really well in the quote too. It's a dead end place where no one believes me. And I think we've seen, there's been a couple of references this season to like the end of the world kind of, but like the, like a place at the end of the world. Seth says it at one point and so does Dot earlier in the season. And I think this is another point where, where Leah's really echoing back that sense where not only does she feel sort of like desolate and alone and abandoned, this place feels desolate, alone and abandoned. And it always has. And so like what you're saying about how, you know, she's thinking back, was all of this worth it? She's thinking mm-hmm. back to the beginning. Um, and so much of this moment feels full circle because she started in the water right. for us and she's in the water again in this moment. Just that feeling of like, was any of these pieces worth it? It's just like, it is really this moments of like crisis I guess kind of for her about like what is she going to do going forward I think too it's just like it's visually stunning with the books absolutely like the cinematography is just like out of this world like it's so beautiful so I couldn't handle it but it's like such a a contrast to like what is going on for Leah inside it is like I mentioned the shouts from the others that really kind of pull Leah out of her sort of reverie She cares in that moment a little bit more about them than herself. And I think that that's really important that she wants to be back with them. And she wants that that relationship that they've built is still strong enough to pull her back, even though she doesn't know the context of what's going on. No one's in danger. No one's harmed. But Leah is also a leader in a lot of ways for that group. And so I think there's so many moments where she feels that she let other people down by not being around. So for example, when things happen with Martha, she's like, if I hadn't been in the spring. And I feel like similarly here, she feels that draw to come back because she feels that sense of community and that sense of camaraderie with the rest of the girls too. Well, more than that, I think it's also family. We've seen her previously in a catatonic state where nothing really pulled her out, even her family, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, Martha is in a catatonic state and what you see the reaction is only when all of them kind of scream and Martha hears them, right? And so I think it's beyond camaraderie. I think it's I think it's about family and community and ultimately love. I think so too. And I think that was really beautiful that it was that was what called her back. For Leah, like being told that she's a child over and over and over again and told that she doesn't know things just really diminishes everything that she's feeling, which is something that we know has happened throughout her life. She's often told the things that she knows aren't good enough, the things that she feels are too big, or they're not where they're supposed to be. And I mean, it leads to that moment where she just like shouts, I'm not a child in Ben's face, and then pushes him down, which also felt like her kind of like drowning her deepest fears. And it was just this moment of catharsis for her. That reminded me, I'm always going back to that goldfish story. I just can't help it. Whenever Leah does anything, I just think back to that story she had about the goldfish. Um, But it was this moment that really showed that, you know, someone can say something like you're a child to her 
And it was something that felt so true then, but obviously wasn't. But it really shows that, you know, where she, she thinks back on that scene with the goldfish and she uses her feelings and her thoughts back then as, you know, the utmost truth. She holds them up. She says, this is reality. Here she thinks about those things that she was told when she's told you are a child. And she really puts perspective that those feelings of her being diminished are not true to who she is now. And so she's able to take that perspective and say that those things that I previously felt don't have to be how I feel now I can like look at them and say yes like I felt overwhelmed with the amount of love that I had for Jeffrey but now I have like that outside step back perspective and I can see that for what it actually was and I just think that there's such growth in that for Leah and I was just really proud of her for that sound like Gretchen I'm better than Gretchen (laughs) yes of course (laughs) you do have the same steamer as Gretchen though I do yes when she's steaming her jacket later I was like oh I have that steamer yeah yeah, and it's just this this growth with her where she can learn to use those hurtful preconceptions that people have against her to her advantage. So instead of those things that people say pushing her down and hurting her, we see her throughout this episode use them to her own advantage. And I am really excited um, to talk about that later. So back at the spring, we see Rachel, Tony, and Dot caring for Martha. They take Martha into the water and... As a result, they actually manage to get a bit of a response from Martha where she squeezes Tony's hand. It really is this shift to a bit of a lighter tone. It's kind of a culmination of sort of this struggle that they've had trying to care for Martha over the last couple of episodes. We also see a little bit of a coming back together of all of the girls. So Fatten and Shelby return, Leah returns, and there's this moment where everything feels shiny and hopeful for a second everyone's back together they're all sitting together they're laughing and then the helicopter comes overhead and that is our final scene of the girls on this particular island i think the words that dot shares with tony are really beautiful there's such a nice parallel between this scene and when rachel and shelby talk about becca but the support that Dodd is able to provide to Tony and the forgiveness and grace as well is really beautiful. I'd also say too, I get frustrated with Taco Bell sauces as well. (laughs) I never remember if fire is hotter than hot or if it's in between mild and hot. And I just like things to be clear to me. (laughs) So I think it's the hottest one. But I don't know if I would make a bet about that. <laughs> so I understand the frustration about Taco Bell sauces and the love for Taco Bell, to be fair. Well, Dot's story is such a real depiction of the irrationality of grief, mm-hmm. loss, and rage. The ways that it doesn't make sense, the ways that it makes you lash out at other people. And she just kind of, in this story, succinctly puts that into perspective. What we've seen from all of the girls, we've seen them all lash out at different points in times when they're struggling and just really creates a space where Tony can be angry and can lash out and where Dot will still hold those feelings for her, but also in a way that really reinforces the care that Dot is going to give her and continue to give her going forward. I think this how this scene starts with Rachel singing to Martha is just beautiful because she's singing Tony and Martha's song to Martha and I think the fact that Tony lets her is also like a really huge point of growth the Tony that we saw in season one 
just had this mentality that it was her and Martha against the world. And so that Tony, I don't think would have liked someone else singing her song to Martha. She would have gotten upset. Like if you think about when Martha's ankle was really messed up and, and Shelby was giving Martha care, Tony really lashed out against that. She wanted to be Martha's only person. But I think her sharing this with Rachel, you know, saying you sing it better than I do, the warmth that's in that is both a recognition for the relationship that Rachel has built with them, but also is just such a, just a special moment where they've built this community where people are no longer individuals, are no longer just their pairs. It's this moment where we know that Rachel's learned that about Martha and Tony, but also where Tony has brought Rachel into that circle. And just to build on that, Tony isn't great at accepting care for herself or about herself. Like whenever she was told earlier, I think this season to like walk away, she didn't, she doubled down, she lashed out. Her also being willing to accept some care from Dot and listening to that and not kind of doubling down and also being in the state to apologize first, I think is also symbolic of growth too. Let's talk about how to little run in with a tree. So... (laughs) When Shelby and Fan come back, number one, if you could just imagine, the last time Tony saw Shelby, you know, they were, she was sitting on the rock. She was, Tony was really struggling. Shelby basically broke up with herself, like took the sweater off, gave it to her. Shelby could walk. Her hair was full length. Like she, she so that was the last moment that Tony saw her. And then just Fatten brings uh, Shelby back and Shelby's ankles twisted. She's chopped all her hair off. She's adopted wearing a bandana. And Tony is just like, what happened to you? Which to be fair, Shelby's lived lives. It's true. I liked the, the call back to how to run, had a little run in with a tree though. I think it symbolizes like a, you know, something happened, but I don't need to talk about it right now or I don't need to take it to the entire group. And it's also just... A little bit of like a symbol between the two of them that everything's okay with that callback line, which I thought was, I thought was really nice. What did you think about the callback for it? No, I agree. And I also think Shelby returning with Fatten would have made Tony feel trust in that situation too, because we've seen Shelby previously go to Fatten whenever she was having difficulties or challenges. And that's one of the roles, the many roles really that Fatten plays within the group is like a very safe space to talk through relationship things or things you might be going through or challenges and she'll always be very supportive well I love that idea of a fat and being someone who they all feel safe with and who they know will always sort of take care of those things right in the same way you know dot maybe would take care of everyone's physical wellness like fatten is really has really emerged as someone who can take care of emotional wellness for people so when Leah comes back, like she and Fatten are so sweet together. There's Such like a nice jokes. moment. It's like so nice. And I mean, it hurts me a little bit because I mean, it's good that Leah was able to come back even without knowing what was going on in the island. Like I think the vindication for her about what was happening is important, but I wanted to see her kind of come back to the group without that being the only thing. But you can also just see that Fatten is so excited to, you know, be able to prove Leah right and and to give that care back to Leah that way. And that's the way that Fatten kind of looks at caring for Leah is being able to validate her and also like help her on this journey that she's on. Something I want to say, and I'll bring it back to Leah and Fatten in a moment, is I was struck when I saw Jeanette's backpack. Fatten was carrying this throughout the whole time with Shelby. They've kept a lot of the side squishy, cute, very Jeanette things on it. And then I started thinking about, have they modified each other's clothes at all? 
And certainly Shelby's bandana is from Martha's shirt, but it's the shirt that she wore with the goat incident. So I would imagine that it was very bloody. And so they used it for scraps. All that to say, I just want to point out, I think that Fatten and Leah are wearing each other's clothes. Now everyone wears Fatten's clothes, but the thumb holes you could see. So in Leah's sweater that she's wearing, when she turns back into it, out from the dress, you see that she has like cut kind of thumb holes in the sleeves. And Fatten, the shirt that she's wearing, also has thumb holes in the sleeve, which is a very Leah thing. So I'm interested if it's actually like Leah's original shirt or if like Leah modified one of Fatten shirts. Anyways, regardless, I just want to say they're wearing each other's clothes. <laughs> Thank you. But everyone wears Fatten's clothes, but like it's a, it's, a, it's a step beyond that. It feels like a little bit more of like a conscious they're wearing each other's clothes in the same way that they did a lot this season with Tony and Shelby. Yes. I touched on this when I was doing my summary, but I just think it's so important that things were looking up for the girls before the rescue, that they built back this sense of community, that they came back together. We're going to talk about in a minute. That was not the case for the boys, um, but they've come back to building this sort of community. There's like this moment of peace before the helicopter comes. Um, I think it's interesting too because this is the second time they've seen something fly over them, right? So helicopter versus plane uh, and their reactions are so different in this moment to when the plane went over. They were elated. They were hugging each other and there is a little bit of hugging that happens in this scene but for the most part I think there's just like this overwhelming sense of relief and hope and I think that's in part about the ways that they've grown over the course of this journey well that moment of levity before they get rescued is so important because it really provides context and understanding to all of their interviews and how that is the lens and the memory in which they will have brought to the second phase of the experiment and it's a direct contrast to the boys where we saw them being very disjointed at the end physically kind of physically separated there was some levity before seth came over with the boat so i do want to keep that in mind but they were actually physically separated when it was a rescue situation i'll also say too 1000 million percent the helicopter is military yes it is very military that's all i have to say about it i just no, I, I think you're 100% right that A, the, that it's military, but also B, that the context for how they are in those interview rooms is so tied to that last memory. And so if there are girls that we see as being like quite calm when they're in their interviews, this is also like the last time that they all were together. And I think you can't forget that context as opposed to if there was a lot of animosity still going on, as opposed to if, you know, Dot and Tony were still fighting or they still hadn't kind of reconciled after those words. So I do think that's, I think that's a really good catch. Why now? I've been waiting to talk about this all season, but like, why was day, was day 50 always the benchmark for when they were going to extract them? Because, you know, if we think about the boys who had a boat and headed out to sea and could have been seen by someone and then had to get rescued because, or some of them would have died out on this boat, that makes sense. But the girls hadn't made a big move that would cause them to be rescued. So Gretchen says, you know, they made it to day 50 and this is how far people make it, which gives you the sense that, you know, there's a way out. Like there's, so what, I guess my question is like, why did Gretchen decide that that was the end of the days for the boys, but the girls was day 50? And what was the actual reason that day 50 was decided to be the day that they were extracted? That's a series of questions for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be time bound. 
in some way. Because I do think the original intention was for them to be reunited with their families at some point, right? Because there's too many people that know about it otherwise, even just Leah's parents, right? Like them knowing who Gretchen is, having that face-to-face, and knowing that they gave Gretchen Leah. Like there has to be something reasonably traceable. Like I do think the intention was that they'd come back and it was supposed to be a time-bound summer retreat. I think it raises the question of what's the narrative for them being found at this point on this peak, if you will. No one's at the signal fire. Maybe they saw it. Maybe they're going to tie it to like the boat that Shelby saw a number of days ago. Who knows? But I do think that, especially for some of the skeptics, I'm surprised that they didn't provide us with more information about what the narrative was of their rescue. Yeah, I think it's just, it's it's the words make it that really confuse me because... You know, if the benchmark was when they go after and they find help, that's very different because the girls didn't really do that at that moment, right? So, like, there's, well, the boys had this boat that was going out into the ocean, this, like, clear thing that was happening, which maybe would have ended their time. The girls didn't have that. And so, but the girls are still heralded as, like, winning the experiment. And so I guess I just want to know, you know, what is the benchmark for when you end the experiment early for when someone doesn't make it anymore? Yeah, well, I think... Like, it wasn't someone losing their hand. It wasn't Martha going into right. a coma. So, like, it wasn't, like, them almost starving. So, like, what is the benchmark? Yeah, I think it's the full, like, it's the full 50 days, I think someone said. Like, they've made it the full 50 days. I think it was always meant to be time unless there was intervention. I think the difference between the girls and the boys' island was that Seth wanted to be extracted and then took the experiment into his own hands by punching Alex and then going out into the ocean and they couldn't let that happen. Like either them be found or them die or there's the massive fracture in the group. Yeah, because I guess like Seth is really the one who tanked the boys' experiment then. I mean, in more ways than one. But also like there's no evidence that the boys couldn't have survived 50 days. Like if Seth hadn't taken the boat from Alex. I mean, they weren't, I mean, we're talking about just a second. We're transitioning over to their island. They weren't doing great. Um, they didn't have any food or water or things. Um, but like there, there's no evidence that they couldn't have pulled it together to live the extra 15 days or whatever. Should we talk about the boys island next? Yeah, let's head over. Okay. It seems like it's basically picked up where we left off post Seth's exile for the second time. The boys are very disjointed and there's low energy in part associated with a lack of leadership from Kieran. Henry and Roth have a conversation in which Henry is basically encouraging Roth to not feel too bad that he totally misjudged Seth because a lot of parts of him were great, but of course there were also a lot of things that weren't great. Meanwhile, Josh heads over to Kieran to ask what's next, and we see Scotty, Bo, and Ivan just talking about the leadership vacuum and how it's really created a mood. To combat this, Ivan starts a game of frizz, and while we see some people initially resistant to some frizz, they end up having a nice time. Do you like like my summary? I think your summary's great. It's just every time you call it frizz. That's what it's called! As part of this frizz time, we also see Bo and Josh reconcile with a hug. As I mentioned, they are having a nice time until Seth reappears, but he has a boat this time, so it's not all bad. 
I'm interrupting this just to say that once again, at the beginning, they are all sitting divided. They never sit together. They're all facing weird different angles. And while we do sort of see them come into these like duos and trios throughout this opening scene, they are like, they're very, even though they've just all come together to exile Seth, they immediately broke apart again. Roth is like really in it with his memories of Seth. He's like really struggling. I think that's his struggle though, right? And it's a struggle even with his girlfriend before the island. He puts people on pedestals and then has a really hard time when that it gets stripped away. It's a fall from grace, right? It's right. like his his heroes that are that are falling, right? And then he he in particular struggles when he sees them fall. And it's also a a challenge because the people he picks should never have been maybe picked as heroes in the first place. He idolizes the wrong people. Right. Yeah. Henry is the right person for him to talk to, right time, right person, uh, because he understands that you can love someone and still condemn them, right? So you can still hold those good memories with that person and still recognize all of the ways that they are maybe not great. And so understand kind of that complexity that exists in relationships. Something Henry's been great about all this season. He talked about that with Ivan back when they were talking about how, you know, Seth was exiled, but all... Henry could think about was him out there alone in the dark, right? So being able to hold both of those perspectives. And so Henry's the right person to talk to Roth because he says, I see that you're struggling. I know that you're questioning why you believed in Seth in the first place. But I also want you to know, like, there is good things about him. The things that you saw don't not exist. It's just you have to hold them with also all of these other not great things about him. In Josh and Kieran's conversation, Kieran doesn't have the answer to Josh about what's next. And there's an interesting parallel between something Dot says in season one about being no one's guiding light. I also just want to say Jocko Malfoy, I think was the best of Scotty's nicknames. I wish you'd have stopped about that because like, they just got worse <laughs> just as got they worse. went on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my question was kind of, you know, why does Kieran feel so low? Yeah. He definitely has a little bit of a savior complex, but like he also... He's also like such a weird leader because, you know, in all the ways that Dot really took on leadership roles and thought about the best of the group, Kieran doesn't actually do that. He often thinks about what's best for himself in some of the ways that he guides the group. And so he is so dejected in this moment. And it feels like such a contrast from where we ended with him at the end of last episode, where, you know, he's kind of banded the group together and they've decided that Seth needs to go. So he's really blaming himself but I wonder if there's just like a level like if we think about their the fact that they're still low on motivation is it mostly just like an emotionally exhausted thing like they've Mm -hmm. gone through all of this but it's just that that constant struggle I have this whole season where everyone always looks to Kieran to see what is next but Kieran maybe can band people together sometimes but he's not the the repository of survival knowledge that you would actually probably want to be looking for in this moment. And also it just shows like they know what they need to do. They need to get water. They need to get food. Like they know the steps they need to take, but people aren't stepping up to do those things. I think you're right when you talk about maybe it's an emotional exhaustion because there hasn't really been a moment of levity for the boys until the Frisbee game since the Jaguar hunt. And so since then, I think they have just been really divided and struggling. Well, they didn't have an ocean party day. And that's right. like, that's the, the closest um, that the Frisbee game ever felt to me. Like a scene from the girls' island was 
was that ocean party day when they're all high and they're playing in the water and they're chicken fighting and like all of that stuff. I struggle a little bit to see what the what the show is trying to tell me with this scene. In part, I feel like the show is trying to say like that if there was no Seth, the boys would have just been great. They would have just played frisbee like this all the time. I don't think that that's actually accurate. I think like more of what they're trying to get at is this group of people in particular, and also in a lot of ways, the girls, in Gretchen's perspective, needed to be beaten down in order to grow back better. And we know that's how she perceives the girls. And I think there's also some truth in it with the boys too, where they really had to struggle through all those preconceptions that they had about each other to like debatable success. (laughs) Because we are still using kind of stereotypical names um, to talk about the group to sort of like get to a place where they actually maybe could all stand as equals. And the hope is, I think, from the experiment's perspective, that they will then grow back stronger to the degree of success at which the show says this in this scene. I'm not sure. It is like a nice moment of levity before the rescue, similar to what the girls had, but it's immediately kind of shattered by Seth. So about the boat. The boat is haphazardly covered in seaweed and wow, there's gas in it. The work, though, sorry, I know you're summarizing, but the work that Seth had to put in to make it look washed up, like, boy must have been just dragging, like, seaweed everywhere and, like, messing the boat up. And there's something about that that just kills me a little bit. I'm sorry, continue. The plan for the boat is that Seth is going to go out and find rescue. There's some back and forth on if this is a death mission or not, but ultimately, Kira doesn't trust Seth, and so he volunteers to go with them. Recognizing that this is a historically volatile duo, it ends up that Roth is going to come too. As the boys head out on the boat, we hear a song from a boys' choir and we see some not great green screening. What do you think about the choice to send those three people on the boat? Well, I think more broadly, what is Seth's plan? Yeah. He has the phone. Right. I feel like Seth's plan kind of evolves from when they leave to as they continue. But I just don't know. Did he just know that they were going to get rescued? I mean, they did. But even just like what happens later with the fight and him trying to convince Roth to send Kieran overboard and leave him behind basically to die. Like, what's the plan then? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure that Seth didn't know that that was going to happen. And we can talk about that when we talk about that scene. But it I agree with you. It's super confusing because... So number one, where's Alex? <laughs> was right. That's the first thing I wrote point. down on my sheet. But so, you know, apparently he has, you know, he hit Alex and he has drug Alex somewhere and like abandoned him in some bushes and then ran around to get all this seaweed to make this boat look like it just washed up. But also he has the phone where he can contact headquarters. And I'm sure Alex had some sort of communication device on him. And so he has all of these resources And instead of just like continuing to want to be extracted because he's now upset because Gretchen knows, his plan is instead to take the boat out to sea and find other help. Like that's not going to make Gretchen happy either. His his plan doesn't make sense. It's just also not a very good idea, I don't think. Like they don't bring somebody like Henry with them who has more wherewithal to be like, this is north. 
This is south. This is east. This is west. This is how we go back to the island. The water's quite rough when they yeah. take off, too. It's not even like they were like, let's think about this. They didn't even pack supplies, like food or water. Seems like they, like they have some water, but not enough, right? No. Like, Kieran is sick. Yeah. There's, there's no planning. I think it's also dumb who they took on the boat. Like, and that's something that really confused me. Like, you don't, you'd think that boat, uh, you'd think that Bo and Scotty probably have pretty good boat knowledge being from Florida, right? So, like, those people would make sense. But I think even, I know some stuff about boats, okay? <laughs> I'm just gonna. Just prepare to be amazed <laughs> no, no, here. No. I'm not gonna say anything. But also, like, the more weighed down that boat is. Right the slower it's going to go, the more gas it is going to take to get anywhere. The harder it will be to propel manually. Yes. And so even the fact that they put three of them on the boat, I think is just bizarre. Like I understand that, you know, Seth said he wanted to go and they were like, and maybe Seth's plan was to go by himself, maybe and and say that the rest of the boys had died or something. But you still have Alex back on the island, so I don't I don't know what Seth's plan was. Was it just to like flee? Like was he like, I just want to be out of this? I don't know. Because he, he punched his option back to Gretchen, right? And yeah. then proposes this new option. It, yeah, his, his whole plan doesn't make any sense. Um, but also, so then Kieran doesn't trust Seth to not leave them, which, fair. And so then Kieran says he's going to go. And then they know that they can't just send the two of them because, as Ivan said, they're a historically volatile duo. So then they decide to add a third person on the boat, as opposed to maybe just saying, let's revisit which two people we should send. Like, I think there's sense in sending two in case something happens to one of them. But... They instead of like revisiting who the two people should be, instead of putting Henry on that boat, instead of saying Seth, you don't get to go, instead of all of these things, they just send three people on what basically is kind of a suicide mission with no planning. I just don't understand. <laughs> I also just want to point out that the boat that they're on and the boat that Alex takes to them is a different boat from the boat that we see in season one when Alex goes to drop off the med bag to the girls' island. Both similar style boats in terms of dinghies, but the size of motor that they bring over to the girls' island is a 50 horsepower, and the one that they are currently personing is a 15 horsepower. So likely, we can surmise that it might be a shorter distance between the boys' island and wherever Alex is coming from. Maybe, just because of the size of the motor, but... It also could be like a continuity thing, but I'm looking at what the horsepower is. Yeah, it's a significantly different horsepower for that motor, though. I think, too, it's important to note that Roth didn't volunteer to get on the boat. He was volunteered. Um, Voluntold. He was, yeah, he was voluntold to go. It's a bit of a weird thing, too, because does it reinforce the ways that Roth hasn't built as strong of relationships with the rest of the boys and thus is maybe seen as more expendable? as a part of this potentially volatile mission? And do they actually trust Roth with Seth? And so it also felt like a weird choice in that in that scene because I, st- I don't think he makes sense to send. And also he didn't volunteer. They they were like, maybe it should be Roth. And then he was kind of like, ah, but he couldn't also say no, right? Well, and especially in his current psyche where he feels like he's made a mistake and he's trying to beyond his own redemption arc. Mm-hmm. You could see that break in relationship, though, even when people are saying goodbye. Kieran says way more goodbyes than Roth. 
Kieran basically hugs everyone. Um, Kieran specifically. In their own way. <laughs> in their own way. Or, or he hugs them or he fist bumps them or he says something nice to them. Now, to be clear, he goes to everyone. Rolf doesn't really go to anyone that we see. It's Henry that comes over to Rolf. But I think it speaks to like Rolf still hasn't built any big relationships with people. Um, and even like Henry, he talks to him, but he doesn't hug him. Henry's kind of like, oh, I don't do hugs, except we've seen Henry hug people throughout this throughout the show. So I think it still speaks to maybe a distrust between the group and Roth, which once again, just reinforces for me, like, why was it Roth they sent? One more thing is that we talked about the song that is playing, and it's like a very different boys choir song. And I just want to say that it's a French song, and it is about lost children. Yeah, and like a translation of some of the lyrics of it are see on your way, lost forgotten kids, give them a hand to lead them towards other tomorrows. That lost forgotten kids thing is really interesting. It feels like that lost children that we've heard people say throughout this show. They refer to both islands as lost children. If you remember back in season one, um, when the plane flew over and then didn't come and get them. Leah says, who sees an island full of lost children and doesn't do anything? And so that that kind of, it was a nice kind of like sense of callback. It was a nice kind of reinforcement of, you know, the island is this desolate place where rejected things exist. Um, that idea of kind of coming, give them a hand, bring them back towards other tomorrows. just was like a callback towards like a coming or a returning to society, I guess, overall. Had like had some like Peter Pan-ish kind of vibes with like Lost Boys, but also like, I don't know if this is just a Canadian thing, but like, you know that Christmas show that's like the island of misfit toys? Where it's all like the broken toys on the island and the Rudolph goes to see them. That's it also nice. kind of yeah, it also kind of felt like that. We're just um on so so many ways, like they feel like lost, but they also feel like no one's coming to save them, so nobody cares about them. So there's that sense of like dejectedness too right and mm. them just trying to get back to a place where they feel good about themselves but also where they're reconnected with society so on the actual boat we see some signs that they have been out there a long time in terms of switching the person who is using the oars as well as kieran being likely seasick or having heat stroke or some combination of the two of those things seth makes a jaws reference too soon Seth tries to turn on the motor, and it's not working, which means that Kieran loses his shit, thinking that he might have messed with them. He ends up fighting with Seth, and Kieran goes overboard. When Kieran is overboard, Seth works very hard to try to start the boat and leave Kieran behind. He then instructs Roth to hit Kieran with the oar once he gets close. Roth instead hits Seth with the oar? And proceeds to punch him until Kieran pulls himself back on the boat and pulls Roth off of Seth. At that time, you also hear Kieran say, there's a boat. Kieran and Seth immediately fall back into that antagonistic kind of relationship. They just, they don't like each other at the core. Setting aside what Seth did to Josh, Kieran and Seth have never had there's no love lost between the two of them. They've always had a bit of animosity that exists between them. And I think it's interesting that that animosity is so deep rooted that, you know, even when they're talking about needing to potentially stop the motor for a little while and, you know, paddle, let the wind push them a little bit. And Roth agrees with Seth on that point. 
Kieran says, don't backslide. That that distrust of Roth is still so deep-rooted. He's on thin ice, you know? Also, man, the ocean is huge. Yeah. I really wanted to take a look at the size of the ocean and map boat routes on <laughs> to, like, calculate the odds of, like, them stumbling upon this dinghy like of something stumbling upon this dinghy as seth states it will happen if they get into a cargo lane but i have like a day job and like i have a day job like can't do it but like i did really want to like calculate the odds i also just want to say like if we're thinking back a little bit around seth's motivation about putting them on the boat in the first place He's so freakishly calm kind of when he's on the boat. Like he it, like he knows they're going to be rescued. He doesn't panic. Like I think he knows Gretchen is going to go get them. And even when, you know, Kieran lashes out at him and then he gets pushed overboard, Seth is so calm when he goes to try to start the boat again like he planned it. And just like the way that he says we're leaving him, there's no second guessing. He just is like we're going to leave Kieran here. And so my question around that is, you know, does he think that Kieran is the only thing that stands between him and being adored? Like, does he blame some of the animosity that existed with him and the group, like setting aside Josh on Kieran and some of the ways that Josh, like what happened to Josh drove that divide? Does he also attribute that in part to Kieran and the way that Kieran really stood with Josh? It's just interesting because... Seth is so confident that Roth will murder for him. He's so confident. He just says, just do it. And it's about this like belief that he has that he is so much better than Kieran is that Roth would just immediately side with him regardless of this super terrible thing that he did to Josh. And it's it's narcissistic. It's very narcissistic. Absolutely. And it also doesn't fit Roth's MO. Like Roth was the person who was saying that they can't just leave Seth to die, even if they think it's the right thing to do is like exile him, not give him a source of flame, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, when you do that, you're determining someone else's fate. And so Roth wouldn't do that to Seth. Likely, he's not going to do that to Kieran because again, it's the same situation. He'd be determining Kieran's fate. And when Roth lashes out at Seth, it's so violent. There's like so much pent up rage and I can only imagine how much Roth has struggled with that in the aftermath about, you know, how much he put harm out in the world. But there's a really delicate parallel that exists in here where, you know, Seth has betrayed the two people on the island who looked up to him the most. The first is Josh and the second is Roth. Both of them thought he was great. And both of them, when they realize that he's not, have a very physical lash out of violence you know we saw it at back at that campfire if you'll remember when josh was like kicking seth in the spleen and like put out his fire and like had this very like violent sort of reaction to him and you see it here with roth where they've seen this person fall they've seen this person have a fall from grace and they are so angry at themselves for trusting him in the first place and angry at seth for making them trust him for the actions that he's done, for the things that he's done, that they have to have this very physical reaction to get that sort of rage out of them. I think that's a great parallel. And just to say too, to close this loop, when we first were introduced to Roth, he was like bloody knuckled and handcuffed. And so we've closed that parallel. And very conveniently a boat appears. Convenient. So on to the bunker scenes. 
We see Gretchen with another getting ready montage and she is prepping for something big. We're talking suit. We're talking steaming it. We're talking mouthwash. We're talking white strips. <laughs> we also see one of the orderlies delivering what looks like invitations to each of the girls. And Dan and Dean go to see Gretchen, who is now fully ready, having a cigarette, walking on a treadmill. An excellent pun is made by Dan, who says, do you want to walk through the next steps? Gretchen agrees, but first there needs to be a conversation with Leah. What this called back to me was the last time we had a Gretchen prep scene. It was in Fatten's episode. So season one, episode five, we started off with sort of a contrast between Gretchen, who was brushing her teeth, getting ready. She went to the float spa, spa, tank, salt tank thing. Um, and it was contrasted with Fatten, who was playing her cello. So it was interesting to see sort of like another kind of prep scene in the same way that sort of callback to getting ready for a big performance. I think it's like a very different Gretchen that we have in this moment because Gretchen back then, I mean, things, everything was a bit of a mess, right? Fatten was missing. They didn't know if they were going to be able to find her. She had some real doubts about financing the experiment. There was, there's a lot going on. And so in contrast, the Gretchen that we see going through this sort of process is much calmer, much more settled, and much more self-assured. And a clear example is we can see that she still is scratching her neck and that the cover-up is applied to it, but the kind of way that she gets ready is so procedural in contrast to when we saw her getting ready and she is like scratching her net and screaming in a float tank right it's interesting to her being all in white i think it's um you know often when you dress people all in white you think things um like them being like an angel or like there's also like a big thinking about marriage i was like marriage (laughs) i guess marriage yeah i think also there's a little bit of like a like a connection to a lot of um like mental health institutions and stuff like orderlies often wear all white so there's like a couple of different places where gretchen kind of has alignment in that um but i will say like it is a choice looking good though Mm -hmm. the one thing that Gretchen is wearing that isn't completely white are her shoes. And so she's wearing a pair of kind of black and white sneakers. And they focus on them a lot, both in this scene, like when she's walking on the treadmill. We also zoom back in on them later on at the plane scene. And so there's a big focus on these kind of shoes. What it really throws me back to is, if you remember in season one, at one point Gretchen's like coming down the stairs. I think it's before she does one of her speeches or at some point in the experiment and she takes off her heels. She talks about walking around barefoot um, and that she only wears heels as a part of some of these meetings and she's not going to wear them anymore. And then she talks a little bit too around like she wears them because like they make her legs look great, but also they're like a, like a tool of the patriarchy. So it was like super interesting in this moment to see her not wear those. And I don't know if it really speaks to her being like a little bit more rooted in connected to sort of her goal a little bit more self-assured feeling a little bit less like she needs to play a role and a little bit more like a badass bitch or or kind of what that's coming from but it is like a very conscious choice that they show a bunch of times on camera that's a great catch and i think you're bang on and it goes back to what we were just talking about how it's the same prep scene as when she was i think about to go sing and dance for funding yeah but Uh, It's it's done in such a different way, and the shoes are a perfect symbol of that. Gretchen brings this sense of 
power really into her conversation with Leah. Their whole conversation, and I'm not gonna go too far into it because I'm sure we'll just talk about it all anyways, but it's just such this brilliant chess match between the two of them. A couple of important pieces of this chess match that I wanna highlight. First is that they confirm that Nora is alive and that Martha is also doing okay. And we see a nice scene between Martha and Tony having a hug. Another piece, of course, is how the scene ends, which is the phone ringing and Leah challenging Gretchen to say, how do you know I didn't get your number? This conversation piece really ends with Gretchen's face dropping and we'll maybe save the montage of Leah uh, for after we discuss the conversation. I love that the first words of this exchange is Gretchen says, you, it's you. Because I feel like it's echoed on both sides. Like, I'm glad you called this a chess match. I think it's like a great verbal spar between the two of them, but I think a chess match is an even better way to describe it. They both come into this with secret tools, thinking that they know what the other person is doing in its entirety. And they both come in with just like a lot of ego and confidence into this conversation. And I think that you, it's you, is just that confirmation that they're both sort of seeing each other in that sense for the first time, but it's also underlined by what happens through the rest of this conversation where there are still a lot of pieces that they don't know. And I think something that shows how much they still don't know about each other appears when Gretchen uses timelines. So after Leah challenges her, she's impressed by the fire that Leah has and says back to her, did you have that fire six weeks ago? Which would be probably about midway through their time on the island. She also says that Leah was still lovesick after phase one, which we can also assume was the island part of it as well. And we know that Leah has been not lovesick for a little bit longer than that. Well, the direct quote she says is, not even the first phase woke you up you were still a lovesick fool when you came into this building. And it's just like, I just want to say, the scene was everything I, I've always wanted, right? Like the build up to this did not let me down. It was worth the wait, it was worth the build. Because even in this conversation, like we're already learning that like things aren't quite what they look like, right? And just the way that Gretchen still thinks that she's so much smarter than Leah is really important. She's like openly psychoanalyzing Leah throughout this conversation too, in a way that number one makes me feel warm because it's like a throwback to season one when she actually did some like analysis stuff of the girls. We missed that in season two, but also it like just gives way to this, this funny conversation where you know, Leah says that she's ready to hear the whole thing, but we actually never really get the whole story. Um, Gretchen, for the most part, sounds like she's pitching something to Leah. It reminds me of when she, you know, does her her practice speech to the non-audience. I think it was just Tom that was kind of critiquing her. Or when she goes into that sort of fundraising kind of meeting with the lady when they have lunch. And it's just like the two of them are kind of like vibrating at like such different frequencies between this whole thing that it's just uh the way it builds excitement is so tangible kind of in this moment what i like what you said about how she still thinks that she's so much smarter than leah but she actually even calls leah brilliant so mm. she thinks leah's brilliant she just thinks she's more brilliant right i also like what you picked up on about this spirit of collaboration 
The quote I wrote down that Gretchen says to Leah is, I am so excited to be working together. It's you and me from here on out. And so it makes me kind of wonder what was the next steps for all of this? And I think we'll talk more about that once we get to the plane scene as well as the gym scene. The other piece I just want to say, I did find this scene a little bit frustrating, especially in light of the cancellation and kind of final cancellation of the show, because this scene could have been more of season two. They're putting two of probably the best actors on the show together just in a room. And of course, they've built up a lot to this. There's been a lot of layering of stories to make those performances shine. But just watching them go toe to toe together and just being like both of them just acted their faces off, if you will. There just was more. I just wish that they had spent time letting people who act well act together. And then that's all to say about that. No, I agree. It's it's such a high point in this finale. It's so fun to watch. Like, not only for the way that the two of them spar together, but also, like, I love this Leah. Like, I love this Leah who is so self-confident. And I feel like there's kind of, like, a great feeling of, like, culmination in this moment, too. Because it's almost like Gretchen goes through the same journey to really see Leah that we did as an audience. Because the way that she's portrayed in season one, episode one, is that lovesick girl. And we really see her come into her own. And we really realize that all of those preconceptions that we also had about Leah throughout the course of the two seasons were all founded on shaky ground. And so I loved that parallel of Gretchen also realizing that in this moment too. I think too, there's like something interesting in here that it's almost like Gretchen looks at Leah as a pseudo prodigy or that's kind of her vision, which I think is like interesting to think about because in order for Leah to be a prodigy of Gretchen, she would have to believe in what Gretchen does. And I don't think she's ever going to get Leah there. It's just the way that, like you said, she's so astounded by the things that Leah does, but almost in a patronizing way because she still thinks she's smarter than Leah. I think, too, there's some confusing language in here. And so I'd like to know what you think. So when Gretchen says that, you know, she refers to Leah still being a lovesick fool in phase one. The implication of what she's saying is that phase two starts when they're in the building. Was that also your understanding? Yes. And then phase three is whatever this third phase is. Yes. Yeah, because I think that calls me back to season one when we were all confused when there's that scene with Audrey and Gretchen in the tunnels. Tunnels. You <laughs> think you tunnels? And she says it's time for phase two to start. They The boats are all tied up in the launch of phase two. If with this understanding of what Gretchen said here, wouldn't phase two be an extraction? Because we always thought that meant it was the start of the second island. But you can't use phase two to refer to 90 different things, Gretchen. It's super fucking confusing. Yeah, you're totally right. I'm wondering if phase two is the boys island starting. And she's kind of referring to like the overall research timelines as opposed to like the girl specific timelines. Which, like, Leah doesn't necessarily know that thing, but probably from Gretchen's bird's eye view perspective, phase one girls, phase two boys, phase three combined experiment, I guess. Yeah, well, I feel like that's one of my disappointments about this scene. It's not actually about the scene. It's about the length of the scene. I think it could have been longer. Mm -hmm. I think they could have stretched it out almost over the course of an entire episode. Because like I said, Gretchen says she's going to sit down and explain it all to Leah. And there's lots of us out here that also would have liked an explanation for some of the things that there are still question marks on. But we didn't actually get to that place. And I understand why we didn't get to that place. Because 
if I'm being honest, I think both of them fell in this scene. Like, I think both of them came into the scene thinking that they knew better than the other person. And their sense for both, for each of them of having already won was kind of their collective undoing, right? Because Leah doesn't want to listen to what Gretchen has to say because she's like, I've already fucking beat you. But the thing is that Leah doesn't understand the amount of power that Gretchen wields. So even though, you know, Leah's like, I've contacted someone, I'm going to be rescued. Gretchen has the ability to pivot the experiment. And similarly, Gretchen sees Leah as someone who doesn't have sort of the skills or capability to do that. And then in this moment, Leah throws a wrench in Gretchen's overall plan. And so but I think the, the fact is, is like they're very peacocky in this like scene. They're both kind of posturing and peacocking. And in a lot of ways... I'm a little bit sad. I understand why it happened, but I'm a little bit sad because I think that there's so much also that we could have learned, especially with our understanding now that like that might be the extent of what we can learn. I mean, certainly I feel like the plan was always collaborative. We see later on all their doors get unlocked at the same time and there's like a pre-recorded, ready-to-play, automated Gretchen voice. So I do think like we were... Advancing towards that, what we saw. Yeah, the notes were already under their door too before Leah came because that happened during Gretchen's getting ready montage. Yeah, more than that, I think when Martha goes to see Tony, it seems like they were left alone, right? Like they were allowed to kind of be alone together, talk, whatever, because there was always a sense of like they were going to be together eventually anyways. Yeah, she definitely was wrapping something up. Like Mm -hmm. she was definitely like Gretchen was always wrapping up this phase two or whatever the kind of end of this was. And I think her plan, I struggle with this sometimes. Like sometimes I'm like, maybe this was always her plan because sometimes I think that Gretchen is more going on than we even see. But on the other hand, um, sometimes I'm like, she just made a great use of, of something that happened and she was just really able to pivot. But I think the end of the day, she always intended for them to come into that weird prom ballroom thing but it's just what was the context that she intended that for and how much did she actually pivot right so as mentioned this chess match ends with Gretchen receiving a phone call and then we see her face drop Leah says love the suit and sees herself out (laughs) as Leah sees herself out the beat kind of drops and you see a montage of some of the ways in which she's been working the system essentially since she arrived she takes a glimpse of the notes about her to understand that there's some preconceived knowledge she steals dan's pass which is how she is able to get into roth's room and she also passes dan in the hallway and takes the strawberry daiquiri i like loved the daiquiri piece like it was just so self-confident of leah number one to like order a daiquiri <laughs> but also uh just she's just like such she's just such a badass throughout this whole scene and i just thought that was great is the daiquiri real what do you mean like do you think dan actually brought a daiquiri yes oh i don't think so i think it's i don't think it's real really yeah what do you mean you don't think it's real i think it's a hallucination oh really yeah oh i've never gotten that why do you think it's a hallucination i think it's a hallucination for a couple of reasons i think first and foremost gretchen says it's a ridiculous request And then we see Dan bring it, which I think is weird that it would be Dan who brings it. Second, I think it's just more of a symbol of she feels like she has the upper hand. And later when we see her in her bedroom with her having the daiquiri and it seeing it drinking and she's playing with the straw, 
I just think it's more about reference, I guess, that she's kind of beaten Gretchen and beaten Dan. And it's not actually like a physical daiquiri. Hmm. I've always thought it was a physical daiquiri, but I'm not going to say that, like, I think, yeah, it could be correct. We know that there's like a very extensive kitchen that can prepare random requests. So like, I don't think a strawberry daiquiri like is that. sushi and chocolate milkshakes. milkshakes. Yeah, <laughs> and multiple milkshakes. So like, I don't think it's that offhand. I just think it was more of a symbol of her feeling victorious than necessarily it was like a real thing. I think that brings us though quickly to our field note of the week too, falls within the scene. Yes, Allie, tell me what the field note of the week is. So our field note of the week, our last field note of the week, I just have to say, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but our, our uh... oh no, I'm sad. Yeah, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so our field note of the week is number 257 and it's, what we didn't glimpse in the pilot, while pretending to be a lovelorn mess, Leah was studying her captors. And this is just something that made so much sense to me. Because we've talked a lot about like the inconsistencies of Leah in the bunker and in her bunker interviews and like the places that we've seen her on the island versus how she was there. And I just loved the sense of her retaking power from the rest of them, of her retaking power and playing them in a way. Like I think her reading the notes on her to kind of confirm that they were psychoanalyzing her, they weren't just jotting down her story. I think like her having orchestrated some of her meltdowns to get like the key card and things like that. It was just such a fulfilling kind of moment to just see all of the growth that she's had. And so I just, I loved this field note because it really spoke to that. It spoke to the way that she kind of played. It's not the most exciting field note, but it felt the most right for an episode like this, where this was like the big reveal. Well, and so much of how she set up her relationship with the detectives was recounting that she didn't remember anything about the girls and she didn't remember anything about how they got to the island. And part of that reason was because she was in her love puddle. So I really like that it came full circle to say, yeah, she was like in a love puddle, but she was also like peering out over her book. Mm-hmm. There's also a nice parallel of Leah's position in the plane with Gretchen's position in the plane later on, again, right at the back, looking out over other people and making sure that they're in her eyesight, as opposed to her being at the front and everyone being behind her. I thought... The key card reveal was really interesting that she, when, you know, when she had, when Dan interviewed her and she was freaking out a little bit and then they gave her a sedative, that she used that opportunity to take the key card. So even when she was like, think about this team, like when she was laying in bed, sadly singing the Ghost of You song, she had the key card in her sleeve. And I think... Just like the level of like detail in those moments is really great. I think it also answers some questions for us. Like there was always that question of like all the doors in this fucking building are locked. How did she get into the video room where she first saw the boys' monitor? But then if you're if you're trusting the timeline as it is, she already had a key card at that point. And so she may have used the key card to get in. I think there's still a little bit of questions for me in here about whether it's continuity or not with her needing to steal the napkin to block the door so she could leave the door so that it didn't lock um, with her having a key card. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I think that 
she knew that once she used the key card, it would be like one opportunity. So I think actually when she goes to find the room with the videos, it's unlocked. I don't think there is like a key room mm. for whatever reason. Maybe there is. We'll have to take a look back at it. But I think that was the thing is she had the key card, but she wanted to save it for the right purpose and objective essentially. And so she knew that this would give her one opportunity and that she always had another in her back pocket. I also will pull out from that montage, Ian at the FBI. Yes, of course. How could I forget? That was like a great moment. And also just number one, that that reaffirmation that Leah reached out to Ian. It was that closing of the loop about Ian going to Devon and then having that conversation and just like that that's the place that Ian took it. It was like, you know, someone who's actually potentially going to do something. Uh, we love a Sagittarius badass. We're both Sagittariuses, which is... It was always so sad because none of the girls were. Then <laughs> they were like, but Ian, and I was like, yeah, I guess like I'll take Ian in. That's fine. But kind of more broadly than that, like all the girls before they went away on this were kind of lone wolves, if you will. Or with Rachel and Nora, they kind of had Rachel and Nora, but we never see a lot of the girls have like other friends. And so that is something different for Leah with Ian and we saw that Ian was a problem in season one because he was kept asking Leah's parents about where she was and that skepticism created a really big problem and that wouldn't exist for many of the other girls perhaps it's kind of a nice callback to episode one when they find when they have Dot's phone and it's almost out of battery and then they're all struggling to think of someone who they could Mm. call who would actually rescue them and none of them can really come up with someone or get a hold of someone and then even you know leah later tries to call jeffrey who just like flips out at her about calling him in the first place and so it's it's just nice that that kind of like reflection led her to be like i'm going to call ian i have one chance i think she's 45 seconds the note says when she finds the phone in the tank of the toilet and she just knows that Ian will solve it for her because I think it's important to remember like we know that Ian's been asking questions about where she is but Leah doesn't know that and so she has to rely back even though they might have not ended in a great place when she left she has to rely back on the foundation of that relationship they have and really rely on that foundation and I just think that that's it's like she takes such great steps forward this episode while also kind of like honoring and recognizing the past So while Leah is drinking the potentially real, potentially not real daiquiri, (laughs) the doors unlock and we see her go out of the hallway and run into Fatten, followed shortly by Kieran and Henry. They hear music coming from some sort of very decorated gymnasium and they all head in that direction. It's also the first time the boys and girls have laid eyes on each other with the exception of Leah and Roth. Things aren't cozy for long because we hear a pre-recorded Gretchen voiceover. Leah immediately responds to this by saying that they need to find Gretchen. And she leads the group through empty rooms with shredded paper and no technology. She leads them up eventually to the rooftop of the compound that they're in. And it seems like they are alone. I love that it's Leah and Fatten who come out first and who reunite first. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, Fatten not being the person who gets to tell Leah that she's right. And I just, I love the fact that they were so close to each other. I love the fact that it's them first because their relationship to each other is just so foundational. And like the implication in here is that their rooms are side by side. 
They were always close. Yeah, they were always close. Isn't that cute? So cute. In contrast, <laughs> it's Kieran and, and Henry who we see kind of come around. Number one, I think, like, Roth must have given, like, such detailed descriptions for Leah to just, like, look at the two of them and, and recognize them immediately. But also, I, like, think my question was, is, like, why those two? So, like, beside the awe factor for Leah and Fatten's rooms being side by side, it also makes sense because they're a pair. But then the question is, is why isn't, you know, Kieran's room beside Ivan or Henry well I understand why Henry's room isn't beside Seth's right but I thought that that was a bit of a weird it's a bit of a weird thing do you think there's any symbolism with it being those two that are the first two that they see no okay (laughs) (laughs) you're like I think this is meaningless and why are you trying to imbue it with meaning I mean on the on the I mean at the same time Probably there's some symbolism, like those were the two deliberately chosen for some reason or another. It could be that they had a similar reunion moment because maybe they didn't reunite before. So it's a immediate recognition that they know that each other's camp was okay, if you will. I do want to say to your comment about how it was impressive that Leah knew who the boys were and that Roth must have given a really detailed description. Quite detailed descriptions. I mean, I think it makes sense because we've talked throughout this season about how the boys never really got over understanding each other as stereotypes. And so I think Leah probably, in turn, stereotyped them and then knew who they were. That's true. I think the other important thing to pull from this sort of interaction is Fatten still doesn't understand the scale. I think for all we want to put Shelby and Fatten as like cheerleaders who unraveled the experiment, Leah holds that key piece of information that there are two islands. And so if you can imagine for Fatten coming out, she's like, yeah, we're in this bunker. We're being released. Like, we're going to get together. There's like a bigger plot going on. And then like two boys walk up and she's like, what the fuck is this? Right? So she still doesn't understand the scale of what is going on with Gretchen. Only Leah kind of does. So loosely related to that, my question is, who set this all up? The hallway is lined with candles. And even when they walk into the gym, there's like streamers everywhere and balloons filled with helium. It also just makes me reflect on the fact that Gretchen was walking on a treadmill and she had a steamer, which I travel with somebody who brings a steamer places that she goes. (laughs) So maybe that's regular behavior, especially if you have like a nice suit, I suppose. But it just makes me really put into perspective the scale of it all and the money that it takes and probably the money could be better spent honestly than shipping helium tanks out to this island before i respond to these comments about the scale of things i would like to say one point i have a lot of dresses that wrinkle really easily and so it is helpful for me to bring a steamer with me so i will not take your judgment because you've also benefited from the steamer it's true you were recently a wedding mvp because you just happened to have a portable steamer yeah, on I just happened to have a, I just happened to have a, a handheld steamer. Uh, the other thing that drives me nuts about you when you travel is that you bring your own power bar. I find that <laughs> so annoying. Like, I understand in principle that it's like Yeah, nice but it to... has the USB converter on it. No, I, I understand that it's useful. You never know when you go to a hotel or whatever if there's going to be an appropriate amount of outlets. But it, it's just the fact that you have you bring this huge power bar with you. <laughs> Oh, it just irks me. (laughs) Anyway. As someone who carries your suitcases, really. (laughs) Anyways, back to the island, or back to the bunker. Yeah, I think, um, I think it brings up the question of, 
like what was Gretchen's like OG plan? What was her original plan? Because as we mentioned, before she finds out that Leah had Ian contact the FBI, the invitations have already been slipped under their doors. So the assumption is the setting up of the candles, like all of this stuff was always meant to happen. But I'm wondering if the room was meant to be empty. I wonder if like investors were supposed to be there. Remember when she was practicing her big investment speech and was the idea to bring them all there and were they supposed to watch videos of themselves on the island? Like the scale of kind of the room is is pretty fancy. It also would have taken some time to set up. I don't think that they were setting up that room while they were also shredding and destroying all the evidence. So cute. I also wrote what was the OG. <laughs> Did plan? you? Yeah, oh, OG. That is cute. Yeah. And I think the three options I came up with were, one, it was going to be kind of this facilitated survival. Like, they were all going to be kind of put together and meant to kind of stay alive. But, like, Gretchen having that kind of bird's eye view of them and knowing that it was this thing and seeing how it would kind of continue to function... The other option I thought about was that it was just like about to go right back to their regular lives and they were going to be maybe monitored or interviewed see or if something. They exactly, kind yeah. of like a reintegration. Or the third thing, which you just hinted on, was like basically it was going to be a road show, which is like, look at my children. <laughs> yeah. Look at how great they are. Look at my research. And exactly as you said, maybe it was meant to be a space for investors to come in with participation from the groups or not. Yeah, I don't think that they were ever... My perspective is I don't think that the intention was ever to leave them there. I think investors or families or like I think either they... I think they were maybe supposed to go to their regular lives and be monitored or whatever that looks like. Because the feel of it is kind of like a graduation or like a prom mm. it's kind of like this this sort of rite of passage with like the disco ball where you know you you end one phase ha 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 but you end one phase and you move into another phase of your life and so i kind of felt like that was maybe the original intention of that event um just because it makes sense with the way with the kind of like way that gretchen sets up spaces to have meaning yeah, I like that you've said that because I think you're right. The space is definitely set up to be transitional. And even what she says, I think she says something along the lines of, now we begin. Also, just side note, funny, everyone's so confused as they're coming in, but they're like greeting each other. Like there's all these lovely reunions that are happening. And Leah's just standing in the middle, scowling at all the decor. And I, I don't know. I just, I just love Leah. <laughs> and just... don't listen to her. <laughs> don't believe anything she says. Oh, she's so funny. But it's even, you know, we hear Gretchen in these spaces still using the same language that we've always heard her talk about the experiment with. She says, you are the promise of a new world. It makes me so upset that we had we didn't get the full breakdown from her conversation with Leah. Because the question that we've always had is, how does this experiment change the world really? Um, unless, like I said, maybe there was always, but maybe I, I'm, I'm talking myself in and out of it as I'm kind of going through it because, you know, she talks a lot about getting power and keeping power. And so maybe in some level she did, she did want to see if they could kind of maintain the power that they had gotten on the island when they returned to their regular lives. And then maybe the idea is with that particular two groups being left, it's to see if the girls can still maintain their power, but so once again, it brings up the question of what the fuck are the boys supposed to learn other than sort of being a prop for the girls to grow? 
Right. And what is their capacity and willingness to buy into this structure where they are now kind of being framed as the lesser group, right? It was nice to see Tony and Shelby have a little reunion in here and all the hugs from Martha. They did like a fun transition where like at one point it was fat and huggy Martha and then it pulled back and it was Shelby and I thought that was cute. I think there's a nice full circle moment here about trust between both the boys and the girls. So first of all, when Leah leads the group out, it actually takes us to our episode title, which is a quote by Fatten. And she says, where she goes, we go. And then immediately after, Roth says, I trust her. And the boys follow, even though we know that there is a broken trust between them. So I think that was a nice full circle moment for both groups. It was nice to see Leah really take a leadership role in a lot of ways. We've seen her come close to taking leadership roles on throughout the series. You know, when she did that mountain climb with Rachel, when she was supposed to get the pills. She's come close to being a leader in the group a lot of times, but she often backs away from it or some of her mental health stuff makes her take a step back. And I think just the trust though that she's built and also that understanding of she is the right person to follow in this she knows more than we know was just so powerful and just that idea of that second person too who backs her which is fatten and so it also speaks to the trust that fatten has in the group because fatten says lee is our person we follow shelby would have said it too and that those voices collectively were enough to make them fucking race through this bunker also like if if the expectation or the understanding is that the time it took them to dismantle everything, shred everything, remove everything, was the amount of time it took Leah to drink a real or fake daiquiri, because that's when kind of the doors open. Holy fuck, they did that fast. Yeah, when I was reflecting a bit about this, because I think they would have been very purposeful with what they took. My guess is that they mostly took what needed to be taken to be able to say that this research proved something. So I think they would have prioritized taking data, files, video, that type of thing. And I also think that they would have known that this could have happened at any chance. And so they would have probably structured how they store things or what they do with things in a way to enable this kind of flight plan. We also don't really know, though, how many people there are. The yeah. orderly that delivered the invitations was different than the orderly that we saw in Jack Leah in season one. So we know there's at least a couple of orderlies, plus Dan, Dean, Gretchen, maybe Alex is back. We don't know if he's ever actually in the bunker, but there are people there to help. We definitely see Alex in the room where they watch the screens. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm not convinced, You're not convinced that, that that's, that's in the, the same. I have a couple things to say. Number one, I think it's interesting that you said they prioritized removing data so that they would have that data. I actually disagree. I feel like the reason that they shredded everything and took everything was to leave nothing for them. Not for the FBI, but to leave no resources for them on the island. So it's just an interesting different two ways of, of looking at it. Um, and then my second point is I completely agree with you. I think there's, I think the scale is bigger. We see that at that one point when they're getting ready to deliver the girls to the island and there's like, right. there's like 15 like people in military getups like all around. We never really see also the usable scale of the bunker. Like we see them going upstairs and like there's the understanding that maybe there's multiple floors, but 
the amount of rooms we see them use is actually not that much. Like you would assume there's a room for every person, a couple of research rooms, like, so it, it does feel, or it does seem like maybe it wouldn't be that much to do if they were also, like you said, always ready to have an exit plan. An exodus. An exodus. <laughs> That's right. Um, also, how many fucking islands are there? Like, how did, how did they get their hands on three islands that are all within close proximity to each other to, like, run this thing? They can't be that far away with their little fucking boat motors. Questions that will haunt me for the rest of my life, honestly. Questions that will haunt me, too, is they're, like, running through this thing, chasing Leah. Well, not chasing Leah, running with Leah alongside <laughs> Leah. But it's in the eye of the beholder, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um... And, like, they're they're having to help Martha, like, limp along. But also, shouldn't Shelby be limping? Right. Like, do you think that her injury is... Yeah, it's, it's But it has been healed. two weeks, right? Yeah. Although I just recently really hurt my toe, and it's been about two weeks as of tomorrow. And just now am I starting to walk better. Yeah, and she's, like, running. Yeah. And you, you hurt your toe. She hurt her. All right, don't... <laughs> say she's younger than me okay i mean young bones she's half my age right she got hit with a baseball in the toe at a tournament okay. and don't so... tell everyone that i'm a lesbian alley <laughs> <laughs> um and to be fair it is like a very wicked it's a very wicked yeah, injury thank you yeah she barely she just like scuffed her ankle <laughs> she scuffed her ankle <laughs> um the ending though with them like coming up to the top and they're at the peak of this mountain. I, I know it destroyed your ship theory, but they're at the peak of this mountain and they're looking out and everything is desolate. And then the Leah scream is just like so fucking iconic though. It's just like, it was, it was an iconic ending. I'm going to interject our fun bunker time to quickly hop us over to the plane. We see Gretchen greet Devin. He's getting out of a car. She sort of welcomes him back into the fold. While she's bringing Devin in, she also fires Dean and so pushes him kind of to the outside. Uh, on the plane, we see sort of four people after it's kind of taken off, which is Gretchen, Dan, Alex, and Devin. Alex questions what's next, and Gretchen says that they're moving into phase three with a new control group and new confederates. I thought it was kind of surprising that she was bringing Devin, if we want to start there. Because my question was sort of, why? <laughs> um, Devin has never really shown any great use to the experiment, especially when we don't have people like Audrey on the plane, or Tom on the plane, or Susan on the plane. Like, all these people who we know she needs for research purposes. I guess, like, this group is what she perceives her inner circle to be. To which, I mean, you hate Alex, so I'm not sure why, but okay. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting that she brings Devin because he's never been a part of the orchestration of the experiment. What we know about him is he stepped in to play a confederate and then he's living at an apartment that's also housing the mail for the experiment, maybe running their tech stuff or something. But it's interesting that she brings him with her, but maybe... It's more of a fear of what would happen to him if the FBI are coming for them. Yeah, my interpretation of this was that she is flying them all somewhere where they will not be found or cannot be extradited back to the States. And so she wants to bring her, her son yeah. with her. It's interesting. I think that, that that makes sense. It's interesting, too. Like, Devin is so emotional and sorry when he's apologizing to her, which... 
is just so different than the animosity that we've seen him show towards her in general. And I wasn't really sure where it was coming from because he's only shown that he hates this experiment. Maybe it's fear about the FBI angle, but it was kind of interesting for him to do that. And he kind of grovels for her forgiveness, I think, in a little bit of a way. On the one hand, I feel like we know a lot about Devin. And on the other hand, I feel like we know nothing at all. And I think he just goes in with other characters like Alex, like Tom, like Seth, where there's trust. I think I know where you're going. And it goes to the next thing that I wanted to say. Which oh, is, convenient. Yeah, <laughs> convenient. Where Gretchen gives these young men quite a lot of latitude. But it comes with conditions, right? And so mm. something that she says specifically to Devin is, we forgive you, we don't forget, but we forgive. So there's, there's there's a lot of interesting things in there. The first one is number one, who is we? <laughs> well, Dan also uses we yeah. when describing that they need to talk to Alex. They need to let him in a little bit on the operation. Yeah, there's this, this sense of like a bigger group of people around, right? And then also, like, it speaks also to this this idea where there is no clean slate. So when we say that, you know, we don't forget, but we forgive, Devin still has to carry that he does that. So they're always toting around sort of these, like, quote unquote, past sins. And so there isn't true forgiveness. But what I'll say, though, is I think it's interesting that she forgives Devin and welcomes Devin back into the fold. But immediately after she does not forgive Dean. Because arguably what they did, giving Ian that information, giving Leah the phone, are kind of on par. And they're intertwined, right? Yeah. And I think, like, nepotism obviously can be a part of, like, what this is going on. God, I can't believe it. This is a nepotistic operation. But I think it does also... Biggest problem. (laughs) I think it does also speak to to the latitude that Gretchen gives to young men. It's even... We haven't chatted about it yet, but it's even like her decision to leave Seth on the island. That speaks to once again, she's giving him latitude for what he did. What he did was terrible, but she has still continued to put him in a place of power. And so she doesn't actually hold these people accountable when she does this in the same way that she does in that moment with Dean. I think there's a lot of differences, as you've mentioned, between Dean and Devin. But I also think there's some similarities, right? That we forgive, we don't forget. That line is so similar to when she says to Dean, you are to be taken back to your apartment where you're going to see your daughter. But if you develop this like guilty conscience, just know that all my gifts come with receipts. So it's a threat, obviously, but it's also saying that it could be taken away and it'll always be remembered. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because like Gretchen in this moment is half impressed slash half furious at Dean. <laughs> She's a little bit of a mix of both. But that line about all my gifts come with receipts, there's like a lot going on here. Number one, it is a great callback to the idea of provenance. So if you remember back in season one, that's something that Fatten's dad talks quite a lot about when he's buying watches. He looks for the provenance, which is the receipt. He looks for that trail of money, that trail of ownership, and where that goes back to, especially when um, deciding on like the authenticity of something. By solving Dean's problem where he didn't have access to his daughter, she has left a trail of money and favors back to herself. 
it's risky, right? She, it connects her to that in a way. And she's using this act of, you know, quote unquote kindness towards Dean as leverage to make sure he keeps quiet, but also as something that can be returned. Everything can be taken back. And there's just such risk. It's like a high risk, high reward situation for her. And I mean, I see why she does it because that's that's who Gretchen is. She's high risk, high reward. She's going to go all in. And uh, I'm not sure that it is uh, <laughs> that it is going to really go in her favor. And ultimately, this trail she creates, it makes me think of the trail that probably informed her, you got to get out of this situation and remove things. But even what we just talked about in terms of what did she remove, I think it's interesting to think about, did she remove things knowing that she'd be found by the FBI? Or as you said, did she remove things that would have helped the girls and the boys? Yeah. And, and we don't, some yeah. of those things might, they might not be mutually exclusive. Like there might be overlap between those two things. But I think it's would have been really interesting to see if there was a season three, what happened with the FBI? Like, was she big and powerful enough to kind of fully make it feel like there's actually not missing kids or not? I also just want to say, risky Gretchen having a bite of chocolate cake. Yeah. Uh, I didn't catch this. Rachel caught this, but... They were, she was eating chocolate cake on the plane. Like the cake that they've all eaten throughout. So risky. But I also think it's it's probably just, it's like the daiquiri. It's like mm-hmm. the daiquiri for Leah is like the Gretchen chocolate cake, right? Yeah, that'd be funny though. Not funny. It would be interesting though if like that was the parallel is like Gretchen's now eating this cake. Leah's having this daiquiri. Two kind of food group things that are in opposition sort of to each other. Mm-hmm. sort of a switched position mm-hmm. where now Leah has like full run of the bunker and Gretchen's on a plane in Leah's seat. Something else I'm going to pull out that Gretchen says in here is she says that they have people, plural, on the island. And so she tells Alex a little bit that they've, you know, removed all of the sort of like monitoring equipment and stuff. But her plan is that these quote unquote people will sort of report back to her there's a bit of an implication that it's Shelby and Josh and I know that Sarah and Amy spoke afterwards as creators kind of of the show about you know ways that Shelby is vulnerable to in to being indoctrined um it's not canon so I don't trust it and so I think the implication is that it's Josh and Shelby Uh, I feel like there was probably a twist that was supposed to happen in there because there's a lot of ways that I'm not sure the two of those, like those two people would make the most sense to do what Gretchen wants them to do. And speaking of Confederates, we also see that Seth is alive and we see him comfortably drinking a coffee, playing with that antenna piece of technology, putting batteries in, being super cozy with his feet up and smiling at the camera. My initial reaction was as fucking if Seth lived. Um, But on further reflection, it is good for Roth because then Roth doesn't have a murder on his conscience. So it's good for for future Roth's mental well-being. Um, But I I just don't understand why Gretchen would leave Seth in a position of power again in that bunker. Do you think that if this were to continue that the purpose would have been that Seth would have been a part of the group or do you think he was going to 
be set up to be this puppeteer and never kind of be seen or heard. I think he has to be a puppeteer. I actually kind of wonder if Nora is there too, Mm -hmm. because I think that that would make sense. And if that was the plan, that that would make sense. I feel like Nora could reintegrate into the group maybe, but I, I just don't think Seth can because what he did was so bad and the boys group has now twice agreed to exile him. I just, I don't see how he could reintegrate. What do you think? I'm really not sure. I think you're right that it would be really challenging for him to be integrated as part of the group and especially when there's like the bigger group now i just don't think it would have a favorable result well i feel like if they just wanted to show us that he was still alive that he could have been on the plane right there's a reason he's in the bunker and maybe in part to show roth that he's still alive but they also could have like left proof somewhere that he was still you know what i mean yeah. there could have been a medical record they forgot to shred or something like there were easier ways to do that then Gretchen once again putting him in a position of power but I think it speaks more to the ways that like Gretchen doesn't really care about what's happening with the boys or like all of those pieces her focus is once again on the girls and maybe it's seeing how the girls will react to these situations so moving over into our overall thoughts and reflections Allie do you want to share yours first sure I like this episode quite a bit I think narratively it sort of made sense I liked that we stuck kind of through the arcs of each group. Like we went all the way through the girls and we went all the way through the boys. And I think it just made sense in a lot of ways and and it just felt a little bit clean. I mean, I think it's one of those episodes where like a lot happens, but also like there's pieces where not a lot happens. Um, It was really tying up for the second half, that big finale in the bunker. But I think like overall as an episode, I really liked it. I loved the arc that Leah got to go through. I loved all the ways that the girls rebuilt. I loved the moments of hope that existed throughout this. I thought that those were super beautiful. There was jokes in here. It was funny. I think there was like a lot of symbolism. And overall, I I really, yeah, I really liked this episode. No, I agree with that. It's a very intentional episode and it's written by Sarah Stryker. So that makes good sense. She's the creator of the show and had the vision for what this episode was, the parallels to episode one, which she also wrote, and uh, where she wanted to take it in season three. I also think, unfortunately, they did really expect it to be renewed. So I think the fact that they kept season three really open was, I don't really know if they knew where they were going with it, but makes good sense. Yeah, I almost in a weird way wish that it had ended with like, self-confident Leah going back to her room like knowing now that we're not getting a season three because then the assumption would be the FBI rescues them and it just gives you a little bit more space as opposed to where we are now that they're definitely still stuck on this island at least until the FBI finds them which I don't know if like how long that can really take but (laughs) yeah but if they will come right yeah something I just want to talk about in my overall thoughts and reflection is this episode's music And so we've talked already about the choir song about Lost Boys, but I just want to talk specifically about the music that plays when they walk into the gymnasium. It's real like 1920s, 1930s, like band music. Mm -hmm. And it's a song actually by Henry Hall in his Glen Eagle Hotel, I think. And it's called Home. Oh. And I just wanted to say that because I think it's really interesting that number one Gretchen would have chosen a song for this moment called home 
but it's the second song called Home in this season so far, of course, in episode three with Edward Shark and the Night of Zeros. So, so to me, these choices, I think, go back to some of the things that make this show really great, which is about found family, found community, and a found sense of home. And so I just wanted to talk about that for a brief moment. That's so beautiful. I guess the perfect way to end our overall thoughts and reflections. Well, let's move into quote of the week. Yeah. Allie, what is your quote of the week? My quote of the week comes from Dot, and it's, it's a long, hard haul, and you have to help you too. So Dot says this when she's talking with Tony and really emphasizing that while Tony is caring for Martha, she also needs to take care of herself. One of the reasons I picked this quote is, I think it really speaks to who Dot is, that kind of mentality she has about one foot in front of the other, but also that understanding and the kindness that she's giving to Tony in that moment. I think it's interesting too, because this is advice that people tried to give Tony last episode. Shelby tried to give it to Tony last episode. Like you need to take a walk, you need to step away. Rachel said it too. And just that reaffirmation of that, or the way that Dot reaffirms that is just so important, I think. And it just, it's something that only Dot could say. Rachel, what was your quote of the week? My quote of the week is short and sweet and said by somebody tall, and a little bit bitter. It's by Leah. Okay, what's the quote? <laughs> the quote is, I love the suit. <laughs> it's a good one, eh? I just loved it. You know, I just think it's such a beautiful culmination of this chess match, of this knowledge they both had of each other, both their strengths and the things that they're struggling with for both seasons. I think this scene was kind of everything that we hoped it would be. Of course, we've talked about how it could be longer, but I'm just so glad that we got to see these two folks bump heads. And so that's why I picked it. I just, and I don't think it's like a particularly beautiful quote. I just think it's a really good final line that Leah says to Gretchen. And that the last thing that Gretchen hears before she hits the van. I think that's beautiful. And I think I like that honoring of like, I don't know, just that scene. I just I can't get over that scene. So I'm glad that you picked a line from that scene and just to... I like that you picked a Leah line, too. Yeah, I like that you picked a dot line. So next up, what we usually do is we talk about Deserted Island Partner. And so each episode, we give out a Deserted Island Partner of the week slash of the episode. Um, we'll debate it a little bit and kind of see who we pick. But the criteria that we use to make this decision is who keeps everyone alive, who keeps everyone sane, who was the island's MVP, and who best embodied Destiny's Child Survivor. So we usually one, two, three, and go. You ready? Yes. Do you know who you're going to pick? Yes. All right. One, one two, three, Leah. Shelby. Okay. Oh, little confederate appreciator. I don't think she... No, you stopped that. <laughs> Tell me, why did you pick Shelby? Sure. Um, I was in between Shelby and Leah, so this will be a bit of an interesting kind of conversation between us. But I picked Shelby because... Shelby's in a not great place in this episode. You know, she's freshly broken up with Tony. She's struggling. She's going through some some self-issues. But she still really pulls it together to help Fatten. She goes through and, you know, she uncovers all of these puzzles, these things that Fatten has been turning over in her head that she's been struggling with. She's supportive and kind when she does it. Um, I don't think Fatten would have found all the things or found all the things as quickly without Shelby the way that she, 
you know, can look at the ground and say, oh, it's been disturbed. The way that she can look up and say, hey, there's something in that tree. I just think is beautiful. I think the way she stepped aside when Fatten said, I think we should wait before we tell people. The grace that she did in that moment is really important. And I'm just so proud of like all the strength and growth and, and all of those different pieces that, that she's built. I think also she's played such a important role in the bunker, like dropping the note off to Leah, um, I think is like a really big thing. And regardless about whether or not she was meant to be the Confederate or not, I just think she's great. Why do you think Leah should be deserted on partner of the week? Always a convincing argument with the last line is I just think she's great. I do just you think know, she's I great. I just think she's great. Hey, you want this to be is very personal. A, yes, I do want to be no, trapped with criteria, her. there's criteria, right? Yeah, there's criteria. Who kept everyone safe? Who was the island's MVP? Who best embodied Destiny Child Survivor? Now I will say. I will say the one no, argument against anything. the one argument against Leah is who is the island's MVP? They're just on a different island. The <laughs> island true. just That's changes. True. Yeah. <laughs> It's just a different island. Also, like Leah went back to the girls on the island after she. Start, sorry, start ben start Folds. your argument. Start your argument. I mean, I didn't really plan to like you go could... to battle. Like I just, I'm just trying to be have a nice time here. But <laughs> it seems to be we had different understandings of how our evening was going to unfold. Anyways, I picked Leah just because for the simple fact they're much better with her than without her. I know that she got a bit power trippy and then made Gretchen kind of flee and maybe they might be worse for wear in the long run. But bottom line, at least at minimum, they're at a place now where there is food, actual shelter, actual beds, and their survival situation is going to be a lot more extended as a result of Leah. And of course, the reason why they're in this situation in the first place where they have kind of survived and maybe there's some sort of FBI thing happening is because of all the things that she did to enable that phone call to Ian. So I'm okay to be compromisey, I think, no, on Shelby. No, it's okay. I'll compromise. Like I said, I was... Normally we debate more, but I was half in between Leah and half in between Shelby on this one. So I am happy to come over to Team Leah's side. I mean, I've talked this entire podcast episode about how much of a badass Leah was. Like, we can give this one to Leah. This podcast has really become a Leah Rilk Stan podcast. We went through our own full circle moment, just like oh, Leah. <laughs> Isn't that nice? So nice. So nice. Well, congratulations, Leah Rilk. You are our deserted island partner, season two episode eight. Well, Allie, take us out. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for uh, this episode for season two, episode eight. It has been a pleasure and I hope you all have a really, really fantastic week. Love the suit. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Bye everyone.